Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And coming up this time, Jennifer Walsh on machines learning about farming, Ashlyn Kelleher on why you don't need any NFTs, the many meanings of water in an exhibition in Skibbereen, and escaping the classical trap with avant popster Sphinx. And we begin this time with artist and composer Jennifer Walsh. This time she's been thinking and indeed dreaming of a future filled with autonomous devices where farmers are few and driverless vehicles are also few, but, you know, you don't need many. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. The name John Deere is one that's familiar to farmers as well as anyone who has ever been stuck behind a tractor on a country lane. For almost 200 years, the company has been one of the world's foremost manufacturers of agricultural equipment. And recently, they announced that they're bringing out a new, very different type of tractor. The tractor of the future, a completely autonomous, self-driving tractor. John Deere's 8-Ore tractor is equipped with six pairs of cameras running through some very advanced AI. The 8-Ore can plough fields, it can plant crops, it can make sure not to crash into trees or sheep. Farmers can monitor and direct the 8-Ore's progress on their phone, freeing them up to do other jobs. I watched the promotional video for the 8-Ore and it's very impressive. A huge tractor driving around a field, carrying out work completely autonomously. The spectacle of the tractor's empty cab is striking, not so much because there's no farmer in it, but because there's no little Jack Russell barking valiantly out the back at you. I wonder if the 8 ore will catch on in Ireland. The tractor might have been trained on loads of data, but... Come on now, lads, that's in the flat fields of Midwestern America, not the bog hill and stony grey soil of much of Ireland. And more importantly, I think, how can a tractor really know the land? In a sense that Patrick Kavanagh did, in the sense that the farmers around me in Roscommon do. How can a tractor know what history the land contains, what it means? My house in Roscommon is next to a farm which housed a soup kitchen during the famine. People came from miles around up my boreen to eat. Can the AI recognise hungry grass? These are, I must admit, the usual sorts of thoughts. And I enjoy having them because they make me feel close to nature, to culture and history, like I even know the tiniest thing about farming. But then I go to sleep and my subconscious takes over. I have a vivid dream about autonomous tractors. They appear in a nighttime scene, indebted to the wicker man. We're in a field. Farmers drinking pints look on as legions of eight oars work in tandem, cutting crop circles which look like arcane script before building an occult monument with silage bales. Who exactly is in control here? John Deere? The farmers and their phones? Or have the tractors become sentient and decided to communicate something? Who knows? Only the tractors do. The rest of us will have to find out. 
Jennifer Walsh's latest Things Know Things There, and next a journey into the magma chamber with vocalist and composer Shifra Quinlan. Quinlan's musical training should have launched her in the direction of contemporary classical, or even the bel canto she studied under Veronica Dunn, but none of those musical lives seemed quite right until she came back to songwriting and began exploring the hybrid domain she's not worried if you call chamber pop. She's just released her first album as Sphinx, The Magma Chamber, a long bubbling song cycle she likes to think of, she told Culture File, as a musical eruption. Traditional classical singing comes with a lot of industry baggage and, you know, there, there is a lot of unlearning to be done, not so much technically, but in terms of how the voice is positioned and how it's somewhat othered within, within classical music. And when the voice is separated into the, the voice of a character, as, as it is in opera, it becomes somewhat not yours. working with the conductor and you're working with the living composer um, and you're working with many other musicians when you're working with an expectation of how the music is to be performed because it, it comes from a certain tradition it's a tall order my own voice and my own aesthetic intentions were becoming lost in that it was this incredible experience of unshackling and unlearning all of these things that I had I had somewhat accumulated and creating space to to find my own voice and creating space to to express myself through that. I was I was leaving college. I had done, you know, an undergrad in pure music. I was very lucky to study under Donika Dennehy and Evangelia Rigaki, but simultaneously I was also studying with the late and legendary Veronica Dunn in the Royal Irish Academy of Music. So I kind of had these two these two separate worlds and in my in my registered course I was kind of gearing up to go into into music perhaps more academically or perhaps down the contemporary classical route and then through my studies with Veronica Dunn and with Imelda Drum gearing up for something that was you know kind of more straight up classical or opera singing it was definitely a confusing time and and it was it was actually Donica who first encouraged me to to begin to kind of meld my singing and my composing because they were in very disparate places I had betrayed that as a teenager I used to write pop songs for myself and once he found that out he really encouraged me to begin writing for my voice again and that was something I I I didn't come to easily because I guess my voice being able to begin to write for it again quite an intimate experience and it took me it took me a while music I first began writing was I guess quite contemporary classical and and I started collaborating with Kirkos and the Irish Composers Collective 
and I began sort of workshopping and performing my pieces. What was Veronica Dunn saying when she saw you heading in that direction? Oh, she was great. I mean, she was like, Lovey, you go for it. And, you know, she was extremely encouraging. And and, and when I was in third year in college, I, I did a, a dissertation on the technique that she was teaching me, which is bel canto technique. And what really landed with me towards the end of that process of, of writing that dissertation was the way in which she made it clear that this technique was a prism and it could be used to sing in many different styles. So I, I took that off and away with me and I, I let things percolate and I, I moved to Berlin. And I was kind of, you know, still trying to keep these two threads going and, and trying to weave them together somewhat. Um, which, which took a bit of trial and error. And in 2016, that was when I guess I, you know, I sat down in earnest and really began to merge my singing and my composing. And I guess I unshackled it from it being, you know, highbrow contemporary classical or being operatic or being art song. I've, I've sang Pierre Lunaire and I, I got involved with a lot of cabaret at one point. And um, they're, they're forms of music that, that I greatly enjoy. Um, and I think they, they have found a home in, in my new music somehow. Um, and I just, I just let it be what it, what it was bursting out as. The Magma Chamber is a collection of seven songs and it's a song cycle. They're definitely threaded together by quite a particular sound world, which is quite quite dreamy and, you know, dominated by the harp. Although dominated sounds too strong a word for the great <laughs> things that are happening on the harp. Hypnotised by the harp Hypnotised by the harp. Um, and I suppose that's maybe the, the primary instrument that is central to, to all of the songs. itself um, was something that came to me a little while back at a point where I was spending some time in Iceland. I was there for an ex extended period and I had sort of half recorded the record at this point in, in 2020. I wasn't necessarily thinking of it. I didn't know if it would be four songs or five songs or six songs and it, it ended up being seven songs. Um, so it was still very early in, in its development and everything was still quite, still quite fizzy and not settled. And we began playing visually in the studio for a shoot. And what we shot is now the album cover. And what we shot um, accidentally ended up looking like a volcano. It, it was this piece where I'm wearing a black dress and a huge structure of, of red material is placed towards the bottom of the dress and then is enveloped into, into more black, shiny material. And, and through through lots of kind of non-verbal play, we arrived at this image and it really struck me that this would be the album cover and that these songs were brewing and that they were molten and that they were sort of swirling around and that in writing them, recording them and manifesting them, that they were coming up and out and they were somewhat erupting. 
Shifra Quinlan there, and that Sphinx album The Magma Chamber is out now from Ergodos. And now, Mary Hanlon's latest exhibition, originally at the Lab Dublin, but now run on to Skibbereen, uses water as a material and a theme in six installations that address the more fraught aspects of water, from flooding to drought, industrial contamination to the realities of water treatment. Culture Files' Rachel Andrews went to meet Mary Hanlon, Waterside, in Skibbereen. We're looking at a glass unit uh, made by a laboratory glassmaker with a central division in the top and that's to stop the liquid from this side going into this side when I'm filling it. Two plumbing units on either end and uh, standing on a specially made shelf. And we have water on this side, and we have pea on this side. And uh, this piece is very much to do with um, recycling water. Uh, Recycling water to drinkable quality, which is something we're not yet doing in Ireland, but it is happening in many parts of the world. In fact, they have a beer in Czech Republic called Erko 12, which is made from recycled water. And recycled water is toilet to tap. So this yellow part of it is actual pee. Yeah. (laughs) It's not pretend pee. Well, uh, I I won't be drawn, uh, uh, you know, further questions will arise as to who produced it and so on and so on. So I'm not prepared to divulge any further except to say that we water and we waste. I suppose certainly the water protests that we had here was part of it insofar as I was engaged by that as everybody was. But I didn't have any idea about making this work at that time. But nonetheless, it's there in the consciousness and then combined with a few other things that happened along the way, further study and the realisation that the Earth's water is finite. Maybe we all know that, but at a certain point, uh, for me anyhow, I became hyper aware of that, coupled with the fact that the, the, the world population is rising very sharply. And that made me question, how will it be in the future then? Will we have enough water for all this need, this rising need? And then the further I looked into it, I also began to discover that in some cases water is contaminated and destroyed. And that means that this finite amount that we have is reducing. So I suppose it was really that equation that uh, impinged on me to a huge extent and Uh, resulted in the work that I have on show here. Yeah, this particular installation here is called Water Table. Uh, It's a long white table, actually three tables pushed together, uh, making one long white table on which are placed seven glass tanks filled to varying levels with water. So at one end is pretty full, the other end is completely empty, and then in between different levels of water. Uh, Initially, I suppose it's very easy to read this piece as um, something referring to flooding and drought, you know, too much, too little. Uh, But the title is Water Table, and that, of course, refers to the water in the ground. Uh, It's not the surface water that we see, the the rivers, the lakes, but the the water that's right down underneath in the ground. And um, the world is using a lot of the groundwater. We shouldn't be using it because it's our reserve, if you like, when, you know, things run dry but we're already pumping it for daily need everywhere, in Ireland as well. 
and uh, the thing about the groundwater is that it doesn't replenish. If it, if it drops below a certain level, nature doesn't replenish it. I made this, this piece in 2018, and I showed it initially in the Lewin Gallery, which is right on the Shannon, very prone to flooding. And I made this work. I showed it in darkness with spotlights, and completing it is a sound work made by Ronald Clark. And there, there were two, two things really that began to move my work away from flat pieces on, on the wall. Uh, one was when I used vitrines in an exhibition about 10 years ago, which was an exhibition in rural red. But the other was working with Rona initially. And we did a piece for Culture Night in the CMC, which is the Contemporary Music Centre. And we made um, a little video piece. And that was the beginning for me of uh, working both with Rona and with some other uh, Irish uh, composers. But perhaps I would separate out the work with Rona because they were usually collaborations, real collaborations. Somehow with the other composers, perhaps I responded to an existing work of theirs, whereas with Rona we devised something together and we've done several installation pieces. So this is a piece about fracking? or about This is a piece about it? fracking and water, yes. We're looking at 16 standing tubes. They're made of clear plexiglass. And each tube contains uh, some water and some oil. And when you put water and oil together, uh, the oil rises to the top and the water sinks to the bottom. And depending on how I poured this combination of oil and water into the tube, uh, it, give, it results in this speckling, uh, and I wanted that effect because it suggests the explosiveness that's actually happening down in the ground as the, the, the water explodes the rock. And the 16 standing tubes are connected with um, horizontal, clear horizontal ones that are empty, and also a set of aluminium connectors. And the whole figure makes uh, a set of squares, nine squares actually. And I took the nine squared figure from a game that um, American children play called Nine Square in the Air. You have the children, um, and it's the children's future. And fracking, I feel, is a kind of game that, that capital is playing with the environment. So you have all of those associations in the work. are so great that we can't ignore it. Uh, and I suppose you'd hope that we wouldn't turn our attention to it to such a degree that we, we, it has the opposite, opposite effect and you know, we, 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 we turn people off because this is all we make or this is all we, we talk about. Uh, but I do think that we are in, in a different time to any other time in that nature is turning on us really and uh, for what we've done and we have to stand up and, and see can we do anything to put things right.
Mary Hamlin there talking to Rachel Andrews. Water, more or less, runs until February 12th at the Illin West Cork Arts Centre in Skibbereen. And finally, this time, a few more toes in the weird waters of NFTs with our tech soothsayer, Professor Ashling Kelleher. If you heard our culture file debate on NFTs, you may remember that blockchain technologies promise, among other things, to change how artists control and benefit from their work. But that's only the very tip of the fatberg of possibilities, as culture file discussed with Ashling Kelleher. I'm always having great difficulty getting you to talk about NFTs, Ashling. Uh, I don't know, why are you so sceptical when the rest of the world uh, is thundering on the door of NFTs and and think that it's the solution for everything, like um, nappy rash and uh, and funding uh, independent media? Uh, Maybe I'm just being a contrarian, but I still, even since we last spoke about the NFTs, still not down with the NFTs, (laughs) despite the fact that 15-year-olds are making millions (laughs) minting them and getting written up in the New York Times, while I, you know, in my antiquated way with my grubby cash, um, continue in, you know, obscurity and less wealth for sure. Yes, I think we're seeing like NFTs everywhere, even where I live right now in Los Angeles. They recently rebranded the Staples Center, you know, the home of the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team as Crypto.com. <laughs> you know, it's so catchy. Why do you need the dot com? Like your company, like we know you're on the internet. You're a crypto man. Like we don't need the dot com, and nobody's going to call it that. It's always going to be the Staples Center. But what you are seeing is the crypto dot com is everywhere, particularly in the arena of sports. It's like sponsoring teams left, right, and center across multiple different types of sport. So possibly similar to how you see, you know, in the premiership or in soccer in general, you see a lot of gambling companies. I'm like, now we have this other form of gambling that's kind of really becoming um, mainstream here in the United States. It's quite kind of protean. I think that's one of the difficulties with talking about NFTs in that they, they're almost, they are everything, it turns out. They are a kind of way of gambling and a lot of sports people who have a, a brand are, are using them. But they are beginning to have lots of uses in, in, in the non-gambling world where people are trying to use them as a, as a kind of an alternative way to, to run their business, to fund their business. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you are seeing kind of positive stories as well, especially for artists who are kind of turning to this idea of art production and particularly the idea of having royalties. Traditionally in art, the legal model has been you know, the artist creates the art, sells it to a collector, curator, gallerist. You know, the gallerist or the representative takes a huge chunk of that. The artwork continues to appreciate, but the only person who actually kind of benefits from that is, you know, the collector, the curator, the owner. So in this case, I think NFTs or this kind of uh, the blockchain approach to art, where there is this sense of as the artwork proliferates or is exchanged from one person to the next, there is this digital track record and those royalties continue to accrue for the original artist. So I think this in some ways is something that seems to be kind of handing greater opportunity to artists to, you know, fund their work, to create work and and to kind of do away with that model of the starving artist, you know, the Van Gogh who doesn't make any money while he's alive. But 
the idea that you could make a, a decent living. Yeah, you have something like OpenSea. Tell us a bit about OpenSea because this is one of the services that's sort of squatting on the blockchain and, and a lot of people's activity in NFTs has to go through OpenSea and it seems to be a very uh, delicate, uh, fragile uh, service. Well, it's more, it's more like a, a, a marketplace where you can purchase these types of NFTs. In fact, I did I was looking at it the other day because I came across a very interesting gentleman professor uh, Professor Brian Fry, who's at the University of Kentucky, and he's a, a legal scholar, a law professor, but also a filmmaker and an artist. And he's been doing some rather interesting things and, and selling them on OpenSea, where he's actually inspired by Yoko Ono's Grapefruit Project, which was kind of a series of like 80 kind of like poems or sets of instructions for people to um, carry out. And she released, I think, two of those. It's a kind of a beautiful piece of conceptual art. So he decided to do something similar. But in this case, rather than thinking of kind of quotidian things for people to do in their everyday life, he wanted to take ideas from legal scholarship, like what is plagiarism, what does it mean to steal something, what is copyright, create them into these short pieces of, you know, three or four sentences. And you can purchase them for the kind of equivalent of about six or seven hundred dollars, up to twenty five thousand dollars to own this NFT, which is in itself a commentary on, you know, the essential quandaries of NFTs, the fact that they're not reproducible, but they're a signifier without a reference. They don't really exist. You can't show them to people. They're kind of based on good faith, which is very different from how legal precedent works. And because there isn't much legal hoo-ha about the regulation of NFTs yet, I think his work to, to my mind, there's something rather intriguing there because the thing in itself is a is a discussant about its own matter, its own lack of matter in existence. There is a new technology here, and it, there's a very strange kind of um, bifurcation of reaction to it. And one part is this sort of incredible venture funds and, and perhaps autonomous venture funds throwing money at anything that uses the word crypto in the title. And then there's the sort of slightly bewildered and and slightly irritated <laughs> approach to, to this new wave of technology, which I might say comes from yourself? Yeah, I mean, maybe I should have more FOMO, you know, about this. But right now, I'm very content not being part of this whole thing. I just, it's a tulip craze. It's so, I mean, obviously, you know, when it comes to something, what is a value? You know, something is as valuable as whatever it is somebody's going to give you money for. You know, if the world says those sneakers are worth $20,000, well, then I guess they are because somebody's willing to pay that much for it. My main concern with a lot of this is that uh, just the actual amount of energy being consumed and created by it. And I think also because of the type of research that I do right now, I'm waiting six months to get a chip that I need to do uh, machine learning on my project that I do that's needed in a hospital. So I'm unable to do my research to assist stroke survivors because crypto miners are purchasing all these chips and it's just impossible to get them. And they've gone from $6,000 to $12,000. So for me, there's a real world consequence of like, I feel that I'm trying to do something of tangible benefit and I can't do it because people are generating, you know, pictures of monkeys. Well, at least you've got a good reason for hating it. It's not it's not it's not just uh, it's not just random ire. You've got actually some concrete reasons. Oh, I, 
I, I appreciate that, Luke. I like to see my <laughs> hatred validated and approved of. Well, I'm going to assume approved of also. Thank you. So what's what's the end game here? Well, you know, if you're you're saying that you know people can't get chips to do research that's important, and the tech bros can get all the money they want for frothy unicorns, how do we get out of that? I really like the work, for example, of, I think we've mentioned them in the programme before, the Critical Engineers. And they have this really beautiful project right now called Harvest. And in that, they're using wind power to create the energy for a computer that then is mining cryptocurrency to pay for climate change research. Okay, so to me, I'm like, that's one very strong answer to, that has a touch of irony about it, but also works. The idea that, you know, the worst part of this is, you know, the cryptocurrency is happening anyway. It's like the same idea that, you know, if you are very interested in climate change, every time you get on a plane, you know, that's really kind of denigrating all your efforts, you know, to use um, LED bulbs, for example. But then the answer to that as well, the plane's going to fly anyway. So it doesn't really matter one way or the other if you're on it or not. But this idea that like, okay, if this mining is going to happen, at least it could be used for something useful, which is like climate change research and and kind of dissemination of ideas about that because that's, you know, that's a really cataclysmic fundamental problem that will make all of this nonsense definitely go away when everything's on fire. Great. Ashling Callagher there, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly and possibly Life on Earth. We'll be back with The Fire next time. That's Saturday 6.30 or your choice of times if you're a podcast listener. Till then, bye now.